0: Welcome to For Fintech's Sake, hosted by Zach Anderson-Pettit. Zach is Managing Director of an accelerator called Fountain City Fintech and VP at MBKC Bank. For Fintech's Sake is a broad look at the world of fintech. Building the future of financial services requires deep understanding of both technology and finance. From the perspectives of founders, investors, and incumbents, we will explore the stories of people living at the intersection of finance and technology. All opinions expressed by Zach and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect those of MBKC Bank. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Welcome
1: back to the For FinTech's Sake podcast, episode two. This is your host, Zach Anderson-Pettit. Today, my guest is Michael Sigmore Michael's a partner at Broadhaven Ventures, where he's led investments in the likes of MoneyLion, ScaleFactor, and a number of fascinating fintechs south of the border that we'll get into later in the conversation. Uh, we cover Michael's background kind of broadly before he got into venture, his time at London School of Economics, uh, how he ended up getting into venture, and a lot of prognostication about the future of fintech, which is pretty fun to dig into. My favorite thing about Michael, though, is that he personifies one of my favorite Richard Branson quotes, specifically, if somebody offers you an amazing opportunity, but you are not sure you can do it, say yes, then learn how to do it later. Every single time in Michael's career that he's been confronted with something that he wasn't quite sure if he could do or not, it doesn't seem like he put much thought into it. He just said yes and then jumped off the bridge and figured out how to build the plane on the way down. So with that, enjoy my conversation with Michael Sidgemore. Michael Sigmore, welcome to the podcast, my friend. How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Zach.
1: Absolutely. We only had to reschedule, I think, uh, four times to make this happen. You ran back and forth between WeWork, you've been on your cell phone, you've been on your computer, you've worked for this one. So it's exciting to have you here.
0: No, thanks for having me. Really, really enjoyed it. And it's, uh, it's funny, the one thing... WeWork is fantastic. Um, love working out of there um, from the perspective of um, just I'm constantly as a seed stage investor on the move. I love going to visit companies in their office because I think it's more important to see what they're like um, relative to kind of them coming to see my offices necessarily, but they the acoustics in a WeWork are not great. You'd think that for a size company, they would be uh, that's something they would they would think about. So uh, here we are.
1: Yeah, I, I appreciate your willingness to to take the walk back home. Um, so let's let's kind of jump into things. So you've had a pretty fascinating career um, through investment banking, through venture, and a lot of different sides of it. So let's kind of kick off um, just with like the Michael backstory a little bit. So starting off in college, you were, you were at Middlebury, uh, playing soccer something that you and I have in common and you ended up, uh, shifting from there to LSE. So tell me, tell me the story kind of quickly around why you made that jump and, um, just the background there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so, so yeah, I, uh, I actually took a gap year before, uh, going to Middlebury I had a gap year which was supposed to be half a gap year ended up being a full gap year so it became this accidental gap year of sorts um I tried to go play soccer in the UK uh was set up with a semi-pro team um before going to Middlebury and was supposed to go in February the following of the following year 2008 and uh ended up finding out that I needed hip surgery about three weeks before I was supposed to go so recovered from my first hip surgery uh in London instead of playing soccer and was about to go to Middlebury in the in the um in February 2008 and all of a sudden my other hip started hurting uh, so I realized uh, that I needed surgery on that hip as well called up my coach said hey I'm gonna be on crutches for a month uh, do you want me to come late to school or do you want me to come next year and he said just come next year so I then had this accidental gap year um, in, in which I then tried to think okay well what do I do now um, ended up reading this book called Leaving Microsoft to Change the World by um, an ex-Microsoft executive named John Wood, who, uh, long story short, in 1999, went on a trek to Nepal since he was burnt out and went in a went in a uh, school in Nepal, saw that there were no books in the library, uh, so realized that he had to do something about that and ended up creating an international literacy NGO that, at that point in time, 2008, 10 years later, uh, was across 10 countries, had affected over 3 million kids, um, built wow. And libraries. Um, so I read that book, uh, then saw John's email in the back of the book. Um, and I just emailed John Cole and said, Hey, John, read your story, incredibly inspired. What can I do to help? And uh, as luck would have it, it, turns out, A, he answered me. B, he said, you know, we have a new office opening up in London. We need an intern. Would you like to be that intern? So I, I jumped at the chance, said, yes. Uh, And then worked for Room to Read uh, over the next seven months uh, for the rest of my gap year, which was fascinating because it really taught me about nonprofits in a number of ways, taught me um, that uh, nonprofits uh, can be run just like any other business, um, incredibly efficient. People work extremely hard. Uh, We had a number of people from places like Goldman, Microsoft, et cetera, working at Room to Read. So the standard was really high Um, and they monitored and evaluated everything. Uh, their donors knew exactly what the impact of every dollar was um, in terms of every dollar they donated went to a kid in need and what that, what the impact of that was. So they were able to measure their investment just like any investor would be able to measure their for-profit investment in the form of returns back uh, into their bank account. Um, so that really changed my view on nonprofits and made me really think, okay, how do I learn how to build a business? I'm passionate about international development, social policy, but how do I learn how to build a business? Mm-hmm. And then, um, went to Middlebury after that gap year. Um, and in preseason, uh, we ended up going cliff jumping as a soccer team. Um, that'll go, that'll end well, that always ends well. Surgeries I probably shouldn't have done, but did ended up, uh, injuring one of my hips, my right hip and needed another surgery, uh, played the season on it, but kind of at that point realized my body was telling me maybe I should start thinking about a career after soccer. Um, so that's really started to think um, about, you know, okay, well what do I want to do with my life and talk to my professor at Middlebury who was teaching political science and I really give him a lot of credit because I was kind of, you know, thinking, what do I do with my life? Um, and knew I wanted to be in the center of the action, wanted to study international relations and international development, but also learn finance. And he said, you should look at LSE. So I transferred to London School of Economics um, to study international relations and social policy at a very focused undergraduate degree. And then, um, and then also got exposed to the world of finance because we were 10 minutes from the city, which is the equivalent of Wall Street. And, um, and then I ended up running the world's largest students on, a student conference on hedge funds and private equity, um, where we had you know, 50 speakers across hedge funds and private equity world come in and speak. People like David Rubenstein or Len Hutchins or Lord Stanley Fink. Um, and that really kind of taught me about uh, the world of finance any
1: big takeaways getting to deal with people whose names that you know had had been in your lexicon for many years before you actually met them what was, what was it like meeting your heroes just quickly It's
0: actually kind of funny so i didn't know when i when i applied to join the conference i had no idea uh what hedge funds were what private equity funds were um okay my, my next door roommate in in college at LSE ran the conference and he said hey you should come out for the info session one day so i did I applied to the conference, um, got accepted. I ended up getting the most sponsors and speakers uh, over the course of what ended up being this um, basically covert trial period. Um, and then since I got the most sponsors and speakers, they said, you're president. So I actually had to spend the entire summer learning about what hedge funds and private equity were, um, and then and did, and it was, it was actually a very organic way to learn about um, an industry. So I found that to be really interesting and uh, really helpful, to be honest. Um, I, I think I'd say in terms of takeaways, uh, one is, um, I learned this from, from reaching out to John at room to read, uh, from reaching out to all these, these incredible industry luminaries cold, uh, was that, you know, just reach out to people. You never know what will happen. I think if there's yep. a tip in here for entrepreneurs, it's, um, you know, it never hurts to reach out cold. Um, certainly a warm intro is better, particularly in VC world. Cause that's, that that's, you know, uh, the way VCs can filter things out is through a trusted contact that there's a warm introduction. But look, if you're, if you have no way to get to somebody other than cold reach out, um, people should never turn it down because you never know where, where something great can come from. And that was really the lesson I learned. And, and the other piece of it too, is that they're just people. Um, yes, they may be famous. Uh, yes, they may have a big name, but once you start talking to them, they're a person just like you are. So, um, you know, so, so if you can bond on a personal level, um, I think that that's really what's important, and and I think credit to the a lot of these a lot of these industry leaders. But because we were students, um, you know, I think they felt that they wanted to give back. So in that regard, it was it was easier than if we were a for profit conference company. That is that is uh, something that I would second
1: a thousand times over, and it seems somehow not to pervade. Uh, colleges that well, the the general thought of you know, hey, that person looks interesting. Let's just send them an email. Seems to be an under under discussed, very obvious strategy that uh, could could be leveraged by many students and get people a lot further.
0: I will tell you, uh, if, if there's any students listening to this podcast, I would say the advice would be play up your student status because while you have it, people yep. definitely definitely be be an audience for that.
1: Well, that's a, the, the warm intro, the cold intro side of it is maybe a good transition into Broadhaven. Um, so kind of you know set the stage a little bit. You obviously got some operational background. You got some reaching out to billionaires background, You know all the things that you expect coming out of London Economics, right? Or London School Economics. Um, how did you end up at Broadhaven? Was there a little bit of a walkabout between London School Economics and Broadhaven? And just kind of what's the story there?
0: Yeah. So, so after LSE, um, I ended up uh, I ended up going to Goldman Sachs. Uh, I worked on the principal strategic investments team in London, which is really their uh, fintech investing team, investing off Goldman's balance sheet with a strategic vent. So we were investing the firm's capital with the idea of it's strategically enhancing firm. Um, so that gave me a real grounding and education in uh, financial services and financial market infrastructure and the purview of a large global bank thinking about how, the financial services ecosystem should evolve so mm-hmm. fast experience works with an incredible set of people uh, many of whom are doing great things both at Goldman and outside of Goldman um, s- since then and wh- while I was at Goldman I was spending time thinking about the uh, you know the marketplace lending space um, and what that looks like um, and it was just kind of 2012 2013 and I got a mm-hmm. call a, um, from a company on the West Coast uh, in Oakland, California called Mosaic, which at the time was uh, crowdfunding capital for commercial solar projects. Um, they needed to hire a head of sales. So they said, hey, w- what do you think about coming and being our first sales hire, uh, building out our institutional sales team to help get institutional capital on the platform? So I thought, okay, I may be, may be wrong on company, but I'm certainly not wrong on marketplace lending space nor am I wrong on the solar industries. Both of those industries were going through really interesting transformations at the time. So I decided to take the risk and take the jump, move halfway across the world. Um, Didn't know anyone in Oakland. Um, Slept on my my boss's couch for the first 10 weeks. Uh, I love it. This tremendous experience um, working at Mosaic. Uh, We kind of went through a process of, trying to figure out the business model as a marketplace uh, at first as a commercial solar lender. And then we ended up transitioning into a residential home solar loan origination business, which has since gone on to originate over a billion dollars in loans. Warburg Pincus has put over $220 million of equity into the business. So um, mosaic is, I think one of one of many FinTech success stories um, as a lending business and has expanded beyond just uh residential home solar loans. So that was a fascinating experience. Uh, hmm. Then ended up, um, moving to New York to build out um, the sales team with with two others at a company called iCapital Network, where we pre-product built out a technology platform to democratize access to alternative investments. So uh, there's a big trend um, of uh, alternative investments, private equity fund investments, hedge fund investments, of being kind of democratized to the high net worth community um, beyond kind of larger institutions. So we built a platform to build that bridge um, between them and effectively kind of think of iCapital almost as like an angel list, but for private equity where we were hmm. enabling people to access private equity funds at hundred thousand dollar minimums instead of five or $10 million minimums into some of the best funds, um, you know, out there Think funds like Warburg Pincus, Silver Lake. Et cetera. Um, so I was there, I was, um, Built that out pre-product, got to about two and a half billion dollars of assets on the platform in three years, Um, you know, getting registered investment advisors, family offices on the platform. Um, and then BlackRock invested 25 million bucks. So by that point, after three years, we got to about 60 people. Um, that was big for me. I love working at the earliest of stages with companies. Um, to me kind of, you know, two people figuring out an idea is really fun. That's what gets my blood boiling and, and kind of saw that with mosaic. I was number 16 with iCapital. I think it was number eight. Um, so have been early at both of those places. And, um, I started thinking, well, you know, I love working with all these companies. Um, maybe there's a way to work with more than one. And I'd known the Broadhaven team uh, for a few years. Uh, I, was, I was advising a company that they were also an, investment in, an investor in in New York. And um, they were thinking about building out their FinTech VC platform. So uh, I ended up joining Broadhaven to build out um, our early stage fintech VC practice out of an existing fintech investment bank, market leading fintech investment bank um, that the two founders of Broadhaven created in 2009. Um, so I've had a chance to build that out over the last two years with um, my, my day-to-day partner, co-founder um, Greg Phillips, uh, who's also the founder of Broadhaven Capital Partners, the investment bank, uh, and then three other partners as well, uh, which has been a tremendous experience.
1: So I want to I dive deeper into the Broadhaven thing, but I'm curious. I mean, being number 16 at Mosaic, being number eight at iCapital, I mean, that is, I was number four, three or four at the startup um, that I joined when I was in college. There's, there is something powerful about being in that, uh, that first 20, right? So is there anything that you took away? I mean, you're still a really young guy. So is there anything that you took away just as a young person, as an early employee at a startup? Are there any, any pieces of advice that you'd quickly give?
0: Yeah, there's two, I think two things one takeaway and one piece of advice. So, the takeaway is, um, and I think that this can really resonate with an early employee is that everything you do every day has the ability to impact the business and you can actually see the impact. Of Preach. The every day. Yeah. Which is awesome. It's empowering. It can be really exciting. Um, and for at least for me, and I think for many people who are at that stage of a startup, um, it ends up being the type of thing where um, it's really motivating. You wake up every day, ready to go to work with your game face on, and just want to want to do something. So I think that was that was really um, you know eye opening for me from that perspective. The thing in terms of of learning is that every single person you add to the team at that stage, I think really through kind of the, at least the first twenty, can make such a massive impact on culture, good or bad. So. Yeah making the right hires is so critical at that stage because even at number 20 you're adding one you know you're adding to five percent of your team right there um and that can be such a big impact on culture um how people interact with each other so making sure you have the right people under the tent all working rowing in the same direction is absolutely critical and Mm -hmm. as an early stage investor now that's one of the things we look for uh, in a very, very deep way, um, is team culture, how they're thinking about building that team and setting that culture. Uh, to that end, we actually recently at Broadhaven just brought on a um, venture advisor who is the VP of HR at Instacart. Her name is Gisu ratafat Beyer, Um and she has been tremendous in helping our teams think through things like culture, team, um, HR issues, because that's what she did at Instacart. Uh, and that's just so important at the early stages because when you get the right team in the right place, it can make such a difference. Um, I actually wrote a blog post about this. One of our companies just went through a Series B a company called Scale Factor. Uh, they're an automated accounting platform for SMBs, and the, the the CEO Kurt Rathman is just so focused on team and culture. He hired a he hired a chief people officer uh, very early on to set and manage culture. And and that's something that's so important to their business. How uh, early, sorry he, to interrupt, but how, how early did he do that? So he was, I believe the, the, the chief people officer was uh, you know, was one of the first 20 people in the building he wow. very yeah. early on. Um, and, and he's been instrumental in the team, instrumental in the culture, onboarding, et cetera. Um, so, so that's been really important to to their business and the growth of their business. And I think, you know, every, every company has different culture. Um, and you know, you can succeed with different types of cultures. Um, you don't have to be working till 1am every, every morning in order to succeed that that doesn't have yep. to be culture. Uh, it certainly can be, and there's no issue with that if it is. Um, but I do think that if you get culture, right, it can be a tremendous moat to the business. And I think that's what we've seen with scale factor is th- their ability to build a great culture, move really fast as a result of it and get the right people in the room to help build this great business uh, is so important to success. It's, it's, it's an exciting trend.
1: I mean, as much as culture is kind of becoming a buzzword and kind of a, an overused and over almost over discussed kind of situation, um, it really is something that you can lean into as a competitive advantage, right? It's something that doesn't just have to be a box checked and it's your HR department, but it's actually something that, you know, can really help you grow a sizable and scale a sizable business, right?
0: Yep, no, 100%, 100%. And what it also does, it can help attract great talent. Yep. Uh, I think Scale Factor has been lucky to attract some of the great talent in Austin as a result of people from the outside looking in and seeing that culture yep. uh, and wanting to be a part of that culture.
1: Definitely. So, p- pivoting back to Broadhaven, I guess, how many, when you joined, I guess, kind of continuing this trajectory, um, how many folks were there at Broadhaven when you joined?
0: Yeah, so Broadhaven has two businesses. I'll give you a little background on that. Yeah. Broad- we have an existing legacy business, which is a fintech market-leading fintech investment bank uh, that was started in 2009 um, by the former head of fintech m a at Goldman, uh, Jerry von Dolan, and his um, and his client at the time, actually um, uh, an executive at R.J. O'Brien, Greg Phillips, who's my partner on the venture fund day to day. They built that business from literally the two of them; so they were a startup too, uh, in 2009, um, to a uh, a kind of full-blown FinTech FinServe investment bank is an independent FinTech investment bank. um, That's done about $40 billion of uh, announced transaction uh, value um, and 12 partners, kind of a number of ex-Goldman partners and managing directors, the former vice chairman of Wasserstein Perella, the former CEO of E-Trade Australia uh, and president of computer share. So number of kind of, you know, senior financial services executives who can help uh, companies at this kind of the top end of the market navigate capital raises, M and A, private placements, et cetera. So mm-hmm. they built that business, and then in 2014, 2015, uh, early stage companies in the fintech space started coming to Broadhaven, saying, "Hey, can you help? Uh, you know, can you help us raise money? Can you help us connect to large financial institutions? Can you help? Um, you know, can you invest in us?" So the firm started making investments into companies where they felt they could add value. Uh, Lion is an example of that. Uh, we were an early investor and, and still sit on the board. Um, so st- started making investments off the balance sheet. Um, and then in tw- at end of 2016, uh, Broadhaven really wanted to formalize that process. So uh, that's when I joined to help build out the early stage venture practice. Um, Greg and I and and the other partners, um, Greg DePetris, Howard Adelstein, and and Jerry Von Dolan, um, we all share kind of a very similar view on financial services, which is that there will be some disruption um, and creation of new brands. Um, But there will also be a large portion of fintech where there's collaboration between fintechs and incumbents. Um because there are so many um you know, there's so many hurdles that a fintech has to get over when it comes to you know the regulatory side of things, building a brand, marketing, having an asset base, uh, that make it hard for fintechs to just out and out compete. Um so large financial institutions can help through collaboration and fintechs can create enabling technology. So we kind of all shared the same vision and decided to create Broadhaven Ventures as a way to invest into early stage companies and also saw that there was this kind of gap to really help early stage companies, mainly pre-seed and seed stage companies, help them go from zero to one, get that first big customer if they're partnering with financial institutions, since we have a lot of those connections and are well networked um, or help them get those few big hires, help them navigate a tough regulatory landscape or incumbent landscape uh, and then get them to series a. So we felt that creating a seed stage FinTech VC fund would really help the ecosystem. And, And we've just tried to, you know, really add value by investing in these early stage companies and helping them graduate to series a. Okay,
1: that makes sense. So dumbing it down a little bit for somebody like myself, is it almost fair to say that um, the Broadhaven initially as this investment bank or this fintech investment bank was mainly writing larger checks? So it's almost like a size, it's a size situation where they're they're writing larger checks, they're handering due diligence on larger rounds, et cetera, et cetera. And then you come in to kind of fill that earlier gap. Is that fair or is it more nuanced than that?
0: As the investment bank, we're not investing into these companies. We're advising Larger financial institutions on M and A deals or private placements. Um, we invest at the early stage because uh, we don't want to conflict with
1: you know, gotcha. Okay,
0: et etc. Um, we're investing at seed and Series A because we feel that that that's the most kind of effective and efficient use of our capital that we're investing off Broadhaven's balance sheet, uh, and that's where we feel we can add the most value to a startup uh, is really helping them, you know, really form their business get their first big, set, big set of customers um, or if they're a lending business, help them get a large credit facility um, because of the connections we have. And we're able to leverage the Broadhaven platform as a seed stage VC effectively.
1: So your, your offering can scale along with the company as they grow, kind of is the, the, the pitch there.
0: And we can continue to help. So, I mean, we get involved very early um, as a seed stage VC is, no different than many other seed stage VCs. We're just able to bring other things to the table. I think we have a team of 40 plus people on the investment banking side. So when our companies need help uh, writing pitch decks to raise rounds, we can, help yeah. them. when they need help getting big customers, we can call into the, you know, the CEO of bank of America wealth management and help them close a large deal enterprise deal with a large bank. Um, you know, so there's things that we can do because we have this kind of extended network of people Uh, on our advisory team um as well as our own networks as as kind of partners at broadhaven um and and the people we know so we're able to really help companies as they continue to grow and scale but we get involved very early we sit on boards we can lead rounds Um, three of our 10 investments uh, over the past two years we've led rounds uh, mainly seed seed rounds Um, i sit on five boards um, as either director or observer and really the goal is to to as former operators, uh, roll up our sleeves, help these companies not be overbearing um, because we, we also feel that at you know at seed stage it 's really about how do you help this company get from point A to point b and I kind of li- like to look at ourselves as how do we help this company graduate from you know, high school to college mm-hmm. we're college series a and we're, we're seed stage
1: that makes sense, that makes sense. so I think maybe the next kind of interesting rabbit hole to go down is kind of along the lines of thesis. So, Obviously, fintech is this huge thing to a lot of people. It encompasses insure tech, it encompasses you know wealth management, all of these things. Um, what is Broadhaven focused on, both in terms of industry, but also in terms of uh, geography? One of the things that I've heard from you uh, that really kind of sparked my interest um, and got me digging even deeper was that you you and Broadhaven are willing to go places that others are not, right? You're spending time in Mexico City, et cetera, et cetera. So tell, tell me a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, sure. So I'll tackle the first question first, and then I'll get to uh, and then I'll, I'll get to the kind of um, you know geographical areas of focus. Uh, yep. how we think about getting on a plane and maybe some of the I saw a great tweet the other the, the other day about airplane arbitrage, um, getting on a plane, finding companies in, in places that might have uh, lower cost of living, lower burn rates, etc. Um, so first question first, what aspects of fintech do we focus on? So uh, we really focus on four areas of fintech, um, but kind of Think that you know. Th- there's a broader application of that too. Uh, so the four areas of fintech are um, are, are capital markets and banking. Um, so that's businesses like Moneyline, for example. Uh, that's building a broad-based consumer finance platform. Uh, we focus on wealth management technology. That's companies like Trisic, uh, which has built a an end-to-end. White label digital advice platform and robo advisor for banks and credit unions. FIS is a investor and a partner there. Wow. Uh, we uh, we also focus on specialty finance, so that would be businesses like uh, credit Justo, uh which is a Mexican small business lender, uh, and that would be kind of. And then the fourth bucket is financial infrastructure, so that can be everything from you know cybersecurity and the application of cyber into financial services, uh, which would be an example there would be something like BioCatch, uh, which is a behavioral biometrics fraud prevention, fraud detection platform, uh, to Beam, which recently raised a $9 million Series A uh, from Graycroft and Canaan, uh, which is a transaction monitoring AML and compliance solution, mm-hmm. to like uh, Scale Factor. Uh, which is automated accounting platform for SMBs that just raised the $30 million Series B from Bessemer and Kanan also led a $10 million Series A. Um, and then kind of in that financial infrastructure bucket, um, we we also think about like, are there other aspects of kind of people within financial services who who need to be kind of covered or served? So some of the themes we're thinking about are like provision of financial services to the gig economy. So how should we think about that in the context of, gig workers needing banking services or gig workers Mm -hmm. needing benefits if the future of work is changing and more people are taking different jobs or a a multitude of jobs. They might be a W-2 by day and a 1099 by night. Um, So how should we think about the portability of benefits like an HSA, for example? So um, so that's kind of how we think about the world of fintech. I think some themes that that are really interesting to us right now, um, really are expressed in our portfolio to some extent. So one is, um, you know, one is banking the SMB. So scale factor is an example of that, right? There are 29 million small businesses in the U.S. Small businesses are really the engine of the U.S. economy. 99% of all businesses are SMBs, but yet 50% of all SMBs die within five years due to lack of cash flow visibility. So uh, something like scale factor that can help companies figure out how to uh, manage their cash flows, integrates all their financial operations. There's, you know, 10 plus different financial software, financial operations software that, that companies are often using across accounting and bill pay, et cetera, uh, payroll um, that, Having something where they can integrate that platform is really important. So uh, banking the SMB writ large, whether it's providing software services or financial services and banking services to SMBs is an area that that we find really interesting. Um, That's not just limited to the US. There are companies like Tide, which is an SMB bank in the UK. Um, That's really interesting. Um, We also think about um, banking the SMB in in the context of emerging markets. Emerging markets is another really interesting area for us. Um, So we have an investment in Credit Justo, a Mexican SMB lender. Um, small businesses in Mexico are entirely underbanked. Uh, So how can you provide them with access to credit? Um, And and Credit Justo has changed that. Um, So those are some themes we're really interested in. We're also really interested in kind of provision of financial services, to the gig economy and the gig worker, um, and who's the right person or brand to bank them. Uh, and then the other thing I think that's really interesting, um, which I I will borrow from a fellow VC friend, uh, who we've invested with at at Canaan Partners, um, in scale factor and beam, um, is, 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 um, is Michael Gilroy from Canaan, whose view is that big brands are becoming fintechs and Mm -hmm. uh, that can manifest itself in a few ways. One is you think about, you know, who, who's at the middle of kind of the payments flow or owns the customer Um, I think those are really interesting things to think about. I I think seeing an Amazon, the bank is not too far fetched. Um, companies like PayPal are very active in financial services. Customers know who they are. Um, and then brands more generally like an Apple, et cetera, has a different relationship with a customer than a traditional bank may. So I think thinking about brands becoming fintechs is really interesting. And then there's a whole set of derivative, uh, applications of, you know, what should you be doing to service those brands who become fintechs, any business that has payments flowing through it may need to be a money services business. So that's where something like beam comes in, they provide transaction monitoring for money services businesses. So when you think about kind of all the things associated with that, I think you can start to think of fintech more broadly. Uh, But those are the areas that we're kind of really interested in and how we're thinking about it. Um, And then to your second question, on kind of thinking internationally, so yes, we are not just uh, North American focused investors. That is where the majority of our investments are. Um, but we have investments in Israel. We have investments in Europe, uh, in the UK, which I think is an interesting um, fintech market and environment. And we have an investment in Latin America and Mexico City. I actually just got back from a week in Mexico City and very excited about the, the fintech scene in Mexico and Latam more broadly. Um, there's some really interesting trends happening there. Uh, in the context of more investors coming in. Um, SoftBank just announced a a $2 billion fund today, focused on America. Um, So I think you're going to start to see more and more venture activity happening in places like Mexico City, where there's 20 million people alone in that city, 129 million people in the country. Um, And uh, it's a really interesting fintech environment where you have, you know, north of 50% of the people unbanked, north of 50% cash economy, 15 to 20% credit card penetration amongst, uh, you know, millennials and gen, gen, um, you know, gen Xs. So some really interesting trends to think about when you think about building consumer finance platforms uh, for the Mexican consumer in a growing middle class. Um, you know, I, I don't think it'll be surprising to see increased credit card penetration in a, in a place where uh, the square of Mexico effectively clip just raised 45 million, uh, 45 million dollar round from General Atlantic recently. So I, I think there, there's some really interesting trends abroad and that's why, um, again, like I said before, I'm not afraid to get on a plane and, and, and find companies in, in places that may not have, um, may not be uh, as well trafficked uh, mm-hmm. by, by VCs and investors because um, I think there's really interesting opportunities there. Um, you know, there, there's an exchange rate uh, in Mexico, there's the, the pesos 19 or 20 to one uh, to the U.S. dollar. So, uh, you know, 10 million U.S. dollars, Credit Booster raised 10 million U.S. dollars from Kasek and QED, two great fintech investors. Uh, 10 million U.S. dollars is 10 million U.S. dollars. That goes a long way in Mexico when you have yeah. the exchange rate where it is. So your burn rate can be extended. Your, your burn rate can be a little lower. Your runway can be extended. Uh, and those things matter when building a startup. Um, doesn't mean you don't have to think about other things. I mean, we have to think about exchange rate risk. We have to think about things like, you know, an exit environment and and later stage investors. So those are things that are, you know, not lost on us, but also really exciting and interesting environments. And same in the U.S. with, you know, with something like Rise of the Rest going outside the Bay Area in New York and Boston, where 80% of all venture capital dollars currently go. Um, I I think there's really interesting companies in places like Austin, where we have two, um, in other cities, you know, Salt Lake, Kansas City, uh, where there's really areas that are kind of ripe for some interesting fintech innovation. So let's let's play a little uh, a little mental model game here. So
1: you have a you have a forty to fifty million dollar fund, whatever you know. You can you can lead around here, you can follow on around there, and you are forced to only invest domestically or only invest internationally. And you're fintech focused. Which way would you go?
0: It's a great question. So, um, so I, I will say. Not to try to cop out of this answer, but I will say <laughs> that um, I will say that you can invest in either place and probably do well. So uh, I am very intrigued by places like Latin America, and I think uh, your dollar can the dollar can go very far. I think there's massive markets, massive chance to create innovative consumer finance platforms and brands. So I really do like Latin places like Mexico or Latin America. Um, I do think there's still great investments to be made in the U.S., <laughs> and part of the reason why I think as a VC, thinking about the U.S. as a market that's really interesting, even still, is a you can find great companies can be created anywhere. Talent is evenly distributed, but resources are not necessarily. Yep. Um, so if you can find talent in places like Austin, which I, I don't think is you know t- terribly far behind a kind of a, a city like San Francisco or New York in terms of the kind of the venture ecosystem or environment, um, you can you can still find great companies anywhere uh, in the U.S. And you do have the follow on funding environment, you have growth equity funds, you have private equity funds, you have a healthy IPO market, um, and, and kind of later stage tech market. So I still think it's great to invest in the US valuations may be a little higher. But the, the reality is this as a seed stage investor, and you kind of have to keep reminding yourself of this is that even if you're paying higher valuations, um, than you know, the vintages of 2012 2013, um, WinVC VC put out a great report on this, um, You know early stage valuation, mainly seed stage, like the round size has increased a few times. Uh, You know, seed stage valuations have increased three plus X over the last, you know, six or seven years. If you're building a billion dollar plus business, then even at a 10 pre instead of a three pre in terms of pre money valuations, um, just just to clarify, um, you'll still be doing really well in investing in great companies. So, um, Given that venture is not even a home run business, it's a grand slam business, I think the U.S. is still a great place to invest, particularly for fintech where there's such a big market. Um, You you might have to be more verticalized or or kind of start in a more narrow approach as opposed to an emerging market like Mexico where you can really build a broad-based consumer finance platform right from the start. And we're kind of seeing companies that are combining aspects of different consumer finance applications here because you can just start so much more broad in a place that is more greenfield than in the U.S. where… It's a little more, you know, it's more crowded and saturated, so you might have to be a little more narrow in your entry point to then build a bigger business. It makes sense. It makes sense. So yeah, you
1: did cop out. So if you have to pick one, you did. You, I, I was a good and fair answer, but I'm forcing you to pick one.
0: I would still pick the U.S. To be
1: honest. Still pick the U.S. All right. Well, I'll see you in Kansas City here very soon. Then I like that. That's what I wanted you to. That's what I wanted you to say. Um, so quickly before we transition into the lightning round side. Your time at Room to Read and just kind of your experience in the nonprofit sector really jumped out at me when I was researching and kind of as you and I have gotten to know each other and talked previously. (laughs) And um, we have in our, uh, in Fountain City FinTech in our first cohort, we actually had a nonprofit, which is a pretty uh, rare thing for, you know, for FinTech accelerators that are kind of functioning on equity investments, right? Um, So what do you see as the future of, Fintech when it comes to nonprofit is that a thing that even will is there a future there? Um, do you think there's potential for it? Should it exist? Um, what what are your thoughts?
0: Yeah, so there's there's absolutely space for nonprofits in fintech. I, I think they can fill in gaps where for profits can't. Um, so let's rewind the tape a little bit and first talk about the rise of tech nonprofits. Um, so tech nonprofits have become a thing in the last few years. Um, y Combinator has actually had a number of nonprofits go through their accelerator. Uh, Watsi, which is a crowdfunding platform for healthcare treatments, uh, went through their program in 2013. That was the first tech nonprofit to go through YC. Um, Upsolve is another example. They're coming out of out of this batch, I believe, actually. Um, and I was actually lucky enough to be an early supporter of Watsi. Um, and uh, I, I will say this: a few things. One is the founder, Chase Adam, is and and Grace Gary, the other co-founder. They're as good as any for-profit tech founders. They think about team building, marketing, user acquisition, thinking about being efficient with their capital in the same way that any great for-profit CEO would. Uh, and they've just decided that their business is better structured as a nonprofit um, than a for-profit because of the way they're, they're, they're kind of their service model works both to uh, patients um, who are trying to get crowdfunded healthcare treatments and then also governments. They actually provide their technology to governments in uh, developing countries. Um, and you know, the the sales cycle there might be too long to be a for-profit business and be venture backed by a traditional VC, but it doesn't mean they're not, um, they don't operate like a tech company and all of that. So I think there's absolutely room for them. I think one of the big questions is obviously, you know, structure, should the company be a for-profit or a non-profit business model? Uh, you know, entrepreneurs should probably think about choosing the business structure that makes the most sense for their business rather than think about, okay, I need to do, uh, you know. I'm going to do a for-profit because I want to raise a lot of money and that'll help me attract better talent. Um, You know, some companies are also doing dual structure. So start with a nonprofit and then build a for-profit arm. Um, There is the talent question. I think that's a fair one is can nonprofits attract the same level of talent given if they can't raise a $50 million round, like a for-profit company can how does that, you know, can they attract the same level of talent? Um, I think as long as you get people who are driven by the mission, you can. Yeah. Um, and if you can raise enough money in a philanthropic round, um, that's kind of characterized just like a funding round, and then you can sustain your operations. Maybe it can work. Um, it is interesting. There are a number of funders, uh, so foundations that, Focus on funding tech nonprofits, and they think of their grants as seed investors That that generally is kind of common out here in Silicon Valley. Um, th- there's a good example: the, um, the Nasiri Foundation. Uh, the, the founder of that foundation, um, he was an entrepreneur um, who built a tech successful tech business in Silicon Valley, and um, you know, and the team there, which is led by Shauna Nasiri, um, you know, they have a mindset for building high tech, um, you know, high growth tech companies, and they apply that to funding nonprofits. Uh, and they're basically seed investors for nonprofits. And they think about their KPIs as how do we get this company to the next stage of funders, which instead of series a VCs, it tends, up, tends to be like corporates or larger donors. Um, so I think there are a lot of similarities. I think it can totally work. Um, you know, it just depends on what type of business model makes sense. Um, it seems like Onward uh, is a great fit. Uh, for a non business model that maybe can even partner with some for-profit fintech companies because of what they're trying to do. So I gotta tell you, man, I agree with everything you just said, but
1: I have this one struggle with it. And the one struggle, ha- have you met Ronnie? Did you meet him when you were in town?
0: No, I have not met him.
1: Okay, so R- Ronnie Washington is a unique individual. This guy, uh, he gets up at you know, 5.30 a.m. every day, uh, doesn't stop working until 9 p.m., and you know, there's no equity upside. That's the mind-blowing part for me out of all of it is this guy works so freaking hard, and he's hiring a team that is working so freaking hard, and there's no equity upside. And to your point about talent, there, there is that aspect of it, but there's also just the aspect that, from my point of view, if Ronnie is rich, the world's a better place, right? Like people like Ronnie becoming wealthy adds value to the United States, adds value to the world as he's going out and doing everything he's doing. So I don't, do you have any thoughts there? That, that is my biggest struggle is that as hard as they're working, they should have some sort of economic upside. Yeah, I don't know.
0: Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. Um, and, you know, if, if you're a funder or a donor of these organizations, you do have to think about sustainability of that organization. And- yeah as part of that of that team, right? Uh, you want that team to be incentivized to continue to do the work that they're doing and create the impact they're creating. Um, I, I, I will say this, I think, you know, totally hear your point. Um, it's a hard thing to grapple with and, and it's hard to know what the right answer is. I think tech nonprofits though, when done right, they raise philanthropic rounds and they raise enough money to then sustain their operations so that whatever revenue model they have will enable them to as long as they keep making money, the kind of granted assets will end up paying the team. Obviously, to your point, not to the same amount of upside, but again, you're measuring for something different. You're measuring for social impact as opposed to financial return. So if you look at that KPI of, you know, they've impacted 100 million people's lives, yeah. then, then, then they've done their job. Uh, and they've been motivated by what they were motivated to do, which is create something that's incredibly impactful. So it doesn't it doesn't solve for some of the things you're saying. Um, yeah, but I think that that is truly why those people are motivated to do that in many cases. I mean, they're perfectly capable and smart enough to go and build a for-profit business and be incredibly successful, but they chose that path for a reason. And I think as long as you can give them the tools to amplify that impact, um, if you're a foundation or a you know or a donor, um, or an I think you could probably call it an investor, again, you're just looking for a different return, um, then, then you've done your job. No,
1: I, I 1000% agree. I just, you, maybe we'll talk after this about, you know, we'll, we'll write some checks to Ronnie just on our own.
0: <laughs> well, the other thing too is maybe there's interesting ways for fintech companies to collaborate with them and they can yeah. kind of collaborative sales channels or pass customers to each other. And there are ways for that company to kind of continue to build their business or maybe move into a dual structure where they have a for-profit entity so that it addresses some of the concerns you just mentioned as well.
1: Yeah. No, I'm with you. You and I, we will solve this over the next decade. You and I together, we will make this happen. Um, So let's jump into the lightning round. I want to be conscientious of time. Um, So the first one, my friend, are you ready? Drum roll. You excited about this? So the first question is, what is your superpower, Michael?
0: So I would say my my superpower is actually um, my ability to listen. So I lost my hearing in my left ear when I was five. Um, due to an accident, and I have the type of hearing loss that means hearing aid won't help, it's sensory neural hearing loss. So I I often joke that uh, I can't hear, so I listen. Uh, And I (laughs) kind of, you know, when it comes to, when, when it comes to certainly what I do every day, and I just really try to listen to people, really understand what they're coming from, what they're saying, try to put myself in their shoes, so then I can figure out how to best help them.
1: I love it, man. Um, so that's actually a nice little transition to the next one. What would you, would you attribute your success more so to luck or skill?
0: You know, I think so much of, of what you do is kind of, um, you know, where you are. So I'd say luck to be honest, but, but working hard enough to be prepared to take advantage of that luck and turn it into a career defining opportunity. Um, you know, I can think of so many times where, People gave me a chance that I probably didn't deserve, but when I got that chance, I just worked as hard as I possibly could to bust down that door um, and prove them right. And I think that that's kind of, you know, if you can take advantage of that luck when you get it, then then, then do everything you can.
1: Uh, yeah. That one quote, uh, the Richard Branson quote, if somebody offers you an amazing opportunity, but you're not sure you can do it, say yes, then basically learn how to do it later. Whatever that quote is, that, that is you in a nutshell, I've decided.
0: I appreciate that no that, that's kind of i mean honestly, if I think about that quote that 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 is uh, that's just yeah i I try to always say yes and just figure out how to do it i i I like to know things and make sure i'm I'm not you know being unfair to people but uh, in that context but but yeah i mean if if you think if you have the right gut feel of like you know what I just got to do this, then then just go and do it.
1: Yeah. I mean, that works out. When we scheduled this podcast interview initially, I had absolutely nothing set up and no podcast equipment and nothing. So yeah, um, I would have to agree with you there. Um, Most impactful book of your life?
0: So I actually have three that have really defined my life and changed the course of my career trajectory. So one is A Hope in the Unseen by Ron Suskin. Um, It's about a kid who grew up Um, with a single mother in a very blighted area of DC, went to the worst high school in the city, if not the country. Um, And against all odds, he made it to Brown University. It was a story that chronicled him through his high school and then making it to Brown. I I probably read that book 10 times when I was 10 and 11 years old. And I was just really fixated on how I could help people who didn't have the chances that I had. Uh, And that's really informed a lot of how I want to live my life. So that, that was one and really kind of, changed how I thought about things two is leaving Microsoft to change the world by John Wood which I mentioned earlier uh, in the podcast um, really kind of made me think about um, you know how just how how nonprofits are structured how to build a business how, to, how do you think about impact um, and I also learned it never hurts to reach out to people you never know what will happen mm-hmm. um, and then the third book is actually more of a more of a classic it's from the 90s um, but being in the technology, Industry. This is one that's really resonated with me, and it's a, it's a book called Betting It All: uh, The Entrepreneurs of Technology by Michael Malone. Um, mm-hmm. Internet. It's interview style stories about Internet 1.0 visionaries like Bill Gates uh, of Microsoft or Scott McNeely of Sun Microsystems or Kim Pales of Marimba, um, and really they just get into the personal stories of of the lives of these entrepreneurs uh, and just show a few things. One is how freaking hard it is to build a company. Uh, and how hard these people work to build successful companies I and mean, what it really takes. Um, so as somebody who's a VC and talks to entrepreneurs who are trying to do that, um, I just love going back and reading the stories when I want to get inspired by people who helped create the internet of today. And that that just to me, it, it gets me really motivated. Every every time I read it, I always come back. And I'm like, all right, I got to help, help these entrepreneurs build something. I love it, man. Well,
1: it, it comes through in your passion. Um, so two more here. One is... How do you see your retirement, AKA what do you want to be when you grow up?
0: <laughs> do I ever have to grow up?
1: You don't, you don't, but I'm going to force you to for the sake well, of the question.
0: Well, I'll tell you. So I, I actually, um, so I don't think I'll ever retire. Um, I, I, first of all, I'm terrible at doing nothing. Uh, I get <laughs> really easily. I, I struggle to just sit on a beach. Um, so, you know, I, I think personal life-wise, I at the, you know, I definitely want to be enjoying my my. my you know, my life and time with wife and kids um, and helping them grow and building building that startup. I mean, that that in and of itself is a startup. Um, and then otherwise, you know, it'll just be helping entrepreneurs and founders build businesses that make an impact in the world. Um, you know, I, I just love helping people. I think that's why I love being a VC um, and I can't help it. So that's, that's probably what I'll end up
1: doing. Awesome, man. Last one um, is technology or financial background or competency more important in fintech?
0: You know, that's a great question. And I think um, an even better question with regards to fintech specifically, because um, it's unique in that it, I think is really helpful to have a background in financial services. Um, Particularly if you're a fintech founder, who's trying to build a business that partners with incumbents and financial institutions. um, I do think it's really helpful to have, either a background or a network in the industry, because um, then you can knock down doors, uh, you can get to the right people, and you also know you know what bank sales cycles look like and things like that. So I think in many cases, it's helpful to have a financial services background, but I will say um, for some of the businesses that are trying to be totally disruptive or build in greenfield opportunities, and we have a few entrepreneurs in this case, um, not having a FinTech background, certainly, or not having a financial services background really doesn't hurt them and having a technology background, really thinking about product design and solving this problem from a standpoint of let's build a great technology solution that's applied to financial services, uh, works. work. So I think to, to be honest, the answer is, um, either is fine, build a team around you that has the competencies that you don't have and that fills in the gaps.
1: Awesome, man. That's a great cherry on top. Michael, thank you so much for the time. This has been really fun, man. Um, I will add a lot of the things that we discussed into the show notes so people can get a hold of you, um, kind of find the things you were talking about. Um, but quickly, where can folks uh, kind of find you on Twitter and social and et cetera?
0: Yeah. Uh, so, Twitter, I'm at Michael Sigmore, at Michael S I D G M O R E. Uh, a lot of people put the, the E in the middle. Um, so, so my, my name is often spelled wrong. Um, my, my email is michael.sigmore at broadhaven.com, B-R-O-A-D-H-A-V-E-N.com. Um, and yeah, more than happy. I, I, as, as somebody who has cold emailed many people and things have worked out, I'm, I'm, I'm never, never want to turn that down. So, um, yeah, feel free to contact me with any questions, thoughts, uh, different perspectives. I love hearing different perspectives. So awesome. Open the email floodgates. (laughs) All right.
1: Thanks, Michael. I really appreciate it, man. Um, This has been really fun. Thank you so much.
0: Awesome. Thanks a lot, Zach. Appreciate it.
1: Enjoy yep. being Thank you for listening to episode two of For Fintech's Sake with Michael Sidgemore Now that Michael's told you how to get in touch with him, I'm going to tell you how to get in touch with us. You can find us online at forfintechsake.com. You can find us at twit- on Twitter at For Fintech's Sake. You can find me on Twitter at Zach Pettit at Z-A-C-H-P-E-T-T-E-T. Or you can email me at zach.pettit at nbkc.com. Zach Pettit spelled the same way. Otherwise, stay tuned for a surprise guest next week. And lastly, please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. That is greatly appreciated. It really helps people find us. And as a fledgling podcast trying to get off the ground, it is greatly appreciated. So thank you and stay away from crypto, y'all.